morning and welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for April 2nd, 2017. Koyo Kubose here, so very, very glad you joined us. This morning, I want to pay tribute to a pioneering Buddhist minister uh, in the Jodo Shinshu tradition, and he was the founding minister of the New York Buddhist Church. Many of the, just, they use the word church as the English, you know, in, in their name. And in the 50s or 60s, I think there was a movement where a lot of them changed it to temple. But some of them were so used to that that they, that they kept the congregation decided to keep the word church. So we find both terms being used, uh, church or temple. But I want to, Reverend Ozen Seki was his name. And he was the founder of the New York Church in, um, in the 30s, maybe, you know, I'm not, I, I, I don't know, uh, my history is kind of hazy, but I just decided I wanted to talk about him today. Um, the New York uh, church had a 60th anniversary some years ago, and a lot of memories were shared about their history. And... Um, in the 30s, you know, airplanes, there, there were no jet, commercial jet airplanes. And when you think about pioneering, from the east to the west is uh, the opposite of the Europeans that came to America in terms of their direction. Because for the Europeans was New York. Uh, Ellis Island and the process the, all the immigrants came and and um, when you think of the East Coast as uh, blue bloods or you know you think of Mayflower uh, Pilgrims, Plymouth Rock and 13 Colonies and uh, and then pioneers started to go west maybe Illinois was the West in those days. So, whoa, and then you went west of the Mississippi, and you could see the U.S. history in terms of Louisiana Purchase and uh, Horace Greenlee saying, go west, young man. And and uh, so the pioneers all went from the East Coast, and then they went to California. That was the you know, furthest west. Uh those were the pioneers, adventurous. Now, when you think about immigrants that came from the east, from, say, from Japan, their first stop is San Francisco. They're going in the opposite direction. And so you will find on the west coast a lot of well-established uh, Japanese-Americans okay, and so forth. Uh, the pioneering adventurous would, would be to go 
go east, go, you know, go to the Midwest, to go all the way to New York, all the way across the country in the 30s, as Reverend Secchi did, was a <laughs> tremendous journey, I guess. They had to, they arranged, friends arranged uh, an airplane. You know, there were no commercial flights okay, in those days. And, uh, and I guess it was kind of a dangerous Dangerous trip. He had to stop, refuel. Maybe he had to help wind up the rubber band. I'm just kidding. Um, but one story shows uh, Reverend Secchi's uh, spirit. And of course, being in New York, he could. He he was the farthest away from the headquarters and the motherland. And so you had that pioneering adventurous spirit and and um he did a lot of progressive things in his ministry and he was very in a sense independent because of the you know, physical distance there and one of the story he 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 was a i never met him or anything but of course but he apparently had a very strong personality and one story that was shared stands out uh, he's the minister at New York church and a prominent visitor from Japan was coming to visit and and flew in and he was waiting at the airport to be picked up and Reverend Seki uh, Got you know ministers are pretty busy people, uh, a lot on their plate and so forth. So he was late in picking up this uh, prominent guest, and I guess the, the the guest was a little miffed or irritated at not being picked up promptly and having to wait and stew <laughs> upon arrival. When Reverend Seki. You know, he, he sort of got this feedback, vibes or whatever, and he said, oh, something to the effect, uh, I don't remember the exact words, but he said something to the man, to the guest, like, uh, um, you know, you, you're not the only person in the universe. Other people have responsibilities and and so forth. Everything doesn't revolve around you. Something like that. Uh-huh. Now, I don't know details of whether they knew each other or, or what, but that guest, uh, when they had a, um, a dinner for him that night, and he was asked to say a few words, what he said was something like, well, there's two things that I, I'm scared of in New York, taxi drivers and Reverend Secchi. So... And then, after, you know, I don't know how long he was at New York, but he retired, and uh, he retired to Hawaii. Um, maybe he was, his family was originally from there, I don't know, or on his wife's side. I, I, I don't know the details. 
but I know that he retired to Hawaii, and I heard that he liked to walk his dogs on the beach. Now, I I don't know any details. Um, I know they were, uh, the Sekis were um, interested in art, objects, sculptures, and things like this. And they had a pretty big collection. So I don't know how, how, how else he kept busy, if he did, or whether he was, you know, completely, well, he was completely retired from the ministry. And you can't move uh, as far away as anywhere, more far away than from New York to Hawaii. Uh, but it stood out in my mind that someone had said, well, he, he walks his dogs on the beach and he's retired. And at one time I thought to myself, gee, you know, he was such a prominent minister and so active and everything. It's kind of... Uh, I don't know the right adjective. In Japanese, sometimes we say motainai, meaning it's kind of a shame or a waste. Okay. And now he's retired and he's walking his dogs on the beach. Uh, what kind of a daily life did he have? What was, you know, the quality of it and so forth? Um, gearing down, in a sense, from you know, maybe uh, not a celebrity exactly, but the same kind of a hearing down okay, and enjoying the simple pleasures. And I was thinking like that. And then it, it struck me that that's what I'm doing. <laughs> of course, we, right now, of course, I have my gardening. I have, we have the right on center. And sometimes I'm asked to, do some religious services, or sometimes I'm asked to, you know, go guest speak someplace. But I'm been retired from temple life, being a minister at a temple for for a long time now. One of my great joys since moving to California eight nine years ago, and you know, that's when my wife Adrian formerly retired at that time. So then we were both retired and then we made the move and we had two dogs and I take them for a walk around our property every day a couple of times and I found a kind of a kinship with oh Reverend Seki walking his dogs on the beach in Hawaii you know and if he it must have been pretty good nice contentment feeling um because I certainly have that kind of a feeling when I walk my dogs around our property, which is like a park, you know. Uh, this unincorporated area that our property is in, all the uh, properties are, you know, at least three, four, five, some up to nine acres large, and so and it's all wooded, and you can't see your neighbors, uh, and and it's uh, or as some. Lay minister visitors come and say, "Oh, this is the pure land for me, you know, to me." And uh, yeah, it's like going any vacation, any place, you know, uh, and walk our dogs, and and it's so nice to be in nature like that. 
And I was thinking, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, when you come from a, thinking about, oh, you're productive, doing things, and busy, and so forth, and then you retire and just walking your dog, of, you know, taking your dogs for a walk, oh, kind of multi you know, or, gee, uh, do you miss that productive, busy life? And like I said, I, you know, this is just sort of a projection, but I realize, hey, that's what that's what I'm doing in a way. Okay. Uh, but everything is just right, just right. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, this, this. And a person, how do you define a rich person? Usually it's through money or through assets, property, and, you know, things. But I heard that the nice definition is that a person who is in control of his time, that's rich, a rich life. You know, even if, you, if you're rich monetarily and materially, but there's a lot of pressure on you or board meetings or you have to, you know, meet a lot of responsibilities, time pressure, meeting people, important meetings. Uh, I'm not sure that's a rich, rich life. A person, that's why I think some people, they don't want to get a big paying job in a big company. They'd rather run their own little business, whatever it is, because they're in charge. Okay? As uh, Caesar said, I'd rather be first in Timbuktu than second in Rome. You know, something like that, where you are the boss of your own time. If you say, I remember to a a picture framing shop one time in the small shop, and and I was talking to the owner, and he said, he used to be an architect, and he was in an architectural firm, and he left that because he was part of a process when they worked on projects, and uh, he, uh, he couldn't, he felt bad that he could not satisfy his customers because other people were involved sometimes. He says, now here, when I'm in charge, if I say, you know, your job will be ready to, for pickup on this day, it will be, you know. Um, that kind of a sense of ownership of your, of your life, of your time, is, uh, I think, a good definition of a rich life. Um, and so it's nice to have that kind of a perspective. I think it fits in with uh, right understanding, right living in Buddhism, too. Well, I want to introduce our guest to give us a Dharma glimpse today, Kyle Kyle. He lives in Arizona. He was part of our uh, LM7 group. So let's hear from Kyle Kyle. Thank you, Sensei, and thank you, everyone, for listening. My Dharma glimpse today is on Buddhism and gender equality. In most religions, gender inequality is the norm. Patriarchal societies dominate the world over, and this becomes part of our religious teachings. Buddhism also falls victim to this particular patriarchal view. I understand that Buddhism is a product of the Indo-Aryan culture, and it is unfair, as well as illogical, to judge it by our current culture. And yet, I can't help myself as I am part of the current culture. 
Many people cite the entry of women into the monastic life as proof that Buddhism followed a more enlightened path regarding gender equality. While this move was definitely progressive, as the Brahmic tradition of the time did not permit women into the religious monastic life, it may not necessarily reflect true equality. Nuns were given eight additional rules that they had to follow in order to join the monastic life. One of these rules requires that the most senior of nuns had to defer to the most novice of monks as her superior. Essentially, a nun with 20 years of monastic service must defer to a monk with one day of monastic service. Buddhist historians have justified these additional rules as a form of compromise that allowed women to enter into the monastic life. The culture at the time needed some concessions to allow such a progressive change. And that may be so, but why do these rules remain in place? Many of the rules have been relaxed in various traditions, but not outright abolished. And even the Buddha himself held on to the sexism of the time by imploring in it these rules. While the Buddha did say women were capable of enlightenment, he did explain how women were simply unable to, cert to attain certain states. In the disclosure on many elements, it states, it is impossible that a woman should be the perfect, rightfully enlightened one. It is possible that a man should be the perfect, rightfully enlightened one. It is impossible that a woman should be the universal monarch. It is possible that a man should be the universal monarch. It is impossible that a woman should be the king of gods. It is possible that a man should be the king of gods. In this passage, you can see the influence of the Brahmic tradition's stance on women not being able to ascend in their current bodies. These are difficult passages for me, difficult to rationalize, justify, or what have you. These examples stem from the Theravadan tradition, which is considered to be the older tradition of Buddhism. They reflect a patriarchy that did not see women as equal to men. I am more comfortable with the more modern Mahayana tradition, specifically Pure Land Buddhism. Unfortunately, unfortunately, even here, I can find a culture that holds men superior to women. In the Pure Land Sutra, it states, if women of the Buddha worlds, who, having heard my name, rejoice in faith, awaken aspiration for enlightenment, and wish to renounce womanhood, should be reborn again as women. Should I, may I not attain perfect enlightenment? For those not familiar with this passage, Amida Buddha is saying that if a woman should say his name and want to be enlightened, she will be reborn in her next life as a man so that she can reach enlightenment. To be enlightened is equated to being male. Some modern scholars have looked at this passage and subsequent passages within the Pure Land Sutra as the fulfillment of the primal vow being equally inconceivable in a male's body, showing that the text equates the human body with sexual desires, which is not possible in the Pure Land. And that is a possibility, but that is a modern lens looking back on a historical document. But this passage is nearly 2,000 years old. Perhaps a more recent Dharma master can show a better example of equality. 
so I turn to the works of Shinran, the Japanese Pure Land reformer. This is from the Jodo Wasan. So profound is Amida's great compassion that manifesting inconceivable Buddha wisdom, the Buddha established the vow of transformation into men, thereby vowing to enable women to attain Buddhahood. So as a contemporary Buddhist living in America, how do I account for these views? How do I rationalize them with my spiritual practice living in 2017? In short, I don't. I'm simply unable to accept the additional rules in the Theravadan tradition as anything other than a cultural reflection of the patriarchy that existed. Nor am I able to rationalize the need for women to be reborn as men as described in the Pure Land tradition. This is my cultural bias. As I grew up in a culture that is working towards gender equality, there is no dharma or truth in these additional rules for me. These passages within the sutras and suttas are biased and present a prejudice. These passages are not perfect. They are not dictates given by a deity. They are the experiences and insights of men and women, both enlightened and those on the path to enlightenment. Knowing that Siddhartha, Shinran, Honan, and many other Dharma masters were subject to the influence of their respective cultures gives me strangely a little hope. They are not some deity above me. They are simply humans that stand beside me. I can still see the value in their writings and the power of their writings in my own life. And I can understand, and as silly as it sounds, or maybe as egotistical as it sounds, I can forgive them their sexism. I too am a product of a culture that includes prejudices, and I too am very far from perfect. And as I can move beyond their sexism and appreciate their many works, I hope that others will forgive my ignorance and maybe look on some of the things that I have to say and smile. Thank you all for listening. Thank you very much. You know, in our lay study program, uh, we used to have a book um, on Buddhism in America, and uh, <clears throat> we covered the different denominations um, and uh, some of the material chapters dealt with social issues, engaged Buddhism. And I remember uh, there was a section on gender. The only reason that we uh, modified our curriculum is that as it developed, evolved, we wanted to concentrate on uh, Bright Dawn's particular niche and in terms of the approach of that my father started. It was not, you know, his approach could not be called in a, an approach exactly. Uh, it wasn't something explicit or clearly defined or, you know, et cetera. And although we have now come to call it a way of oneness and, and sort of uh, systematize it a little bit, um, and, of course, the emphasis is on individual spirituality rather than any kind of sectarian dogma and given our our founding and our and our history of his temple and 
his work, my father's work, was having an independent temple. By independent meaning politically, administratively, and so forth. Okay. Um, so he is uh, <clears throat> uh, kind of unique in that way. He was not bound by certain uh, sectarian uh, belief systems or rituals and so forth. And uh, although, he, of course, he was heavily influenced in his own lineage as a minister, uh, as a Shinshu minister, and he was also influenced by his own uh, teachings and the original teachings of Gautama Buddha. But politically... You know, not part of any hierarchy and so forth. So we wanted to emphasize, put the center on his teachings uh, and his writings, you know, in our organization. Bright Dawn, of course, is a translation of his Dharma name, Gyome. And uh, our important mission is to make sure that his books and so forth are always available and, and we want to continually evolve in his non-dualistic approach. So we wanted to really uh, put a spotlight on that and not, in terms of the program, deal with a lot of very important topics in terms of Buddhism in America. So we tailored the the time that we spent in the program uh, more towards uh, really delving into his particular expressions of the Dharma. Uh, we, you know, we used to have a. Uh, we thought it would be nice contemporary to talk about uh, ecology and so forth. There's a lot of uh, good works, uh, books, and references and movements in terms of uh, green Buddhism, green Dharma, eco sanghas, and so forth. But these are all important things, but things that lay ministers could go on in their own furthering education, study, and interests afterwards. We want to concentrate on our niche, our core. It doesn't reflect the you know, relative importance differences and things like this. Um, but I do remember there was a, you know, in, a lot of, it's an important issue that's raised, gender. Whenever I go to go to speak to an, inter, an interface and we have a question and answer period, and, you know, some, some ladies would say, well, what is a Buddhist position you know, on the role of women? And, uh, and of course, you know, it's, it's relative in a sense, different. Uh, religions are different denominations. They have different uh, stances, okay? and even within Buddhism, there's a variability, as you as you heard in today's Dharma glimpse. Um, and it could be even relative to what particular minister, you know, in a given denomination. Some were liberal, some were not. But I think, uh, generally speaking. Uh, Buddhism is pretty liberal in terms of uh, women's roles, and particularly in, in Shinshu Buddhism, of course, um, 
women can become ministers and you know and then in the temples there are a lot of temple presidents that are women and so in that sense uh, it's quite liberal relative to other religions and other denominations where there is undoubtedly still not complete gender equality. Think about these things. You know, it wasn't that long ago when women did not have the vote, you know, in suffrage and civil rights and all these things. I think uh, uh, we live in a tremendous contemporary age where we're really confronting and struggling with all these issues as a society. And that's a tremendous thing. That that's, means we're alive, you know. Um, in Buddhism itself, we all, we all, there's a lot of sex scandals in you know, certain denominations where the teacher, uh, even though the students may have, may have uh, given consent to enter into relationships, with the teacher, you know, there's uh, such a thing as that power hierarchy and so forth. And and um, so there's all kind of ways. And there we have rainbow sanghas. They're struggling with their own kinds of issues within Buddhism. And I, I remember... I can't remember exactly who it was, but I was reading something, and they said, oh, this group, this person was active in this organization. So I, I, I never heard of this organization, so I looked it up, and and some of the founders, uh, this more, con, you know, contemporary group, and one of the founders, one of his um, goals was to undo whiteness, undo patriarchy you know, as, as sort of the um, in America uh, particularly in America you know in other countries when you talk about a culture I mean this is the whole country's you know mores uh, there's a reason why the religions fit in and had do you know water to the fish this is the way it was and at that time it was probably very radical for them to you know it, the the dogma was women no no enlightenment for women no the spirituality is serious is for men <laughs> and at that time okay like the dharma glim said it's a, a cultural thing they historically you can't help but be influenced. Okay. And so it took some very radical breakthrough, in a sense, to say, yes, women can be enlightened. Okay. If they turn, if at the time of enlightenment, okay, this is one the example that was given, they have to be transformed in the next life to men, then they're fully enlightened. Okay. That sounds abominable to us, but at that time, to that person that made that, you know, he was a liberal, he was a radical, okay? because the most dogmatic view at that time was no enlightenment for women, 
Now here he says, hey, it's got loosened up. And I think this is an organic process that is going to continually go on. And that's where Mahayana tradition, you know, uh, certain time in history, place and time, you, needs of the people arose, and those needs are going to be met. See? Leaders and so forth are going to arise to meet the people's needs. Um, and this is uh, to be encouraged. Okay? We need that kind of, not just freedom of religion, not just freedom from religion, as atheists remind us, but freedom within a religion. That we should encourage this okay? and support it. Um, and that's the what what makes everything interesting and makes things happen. <laughs> Well, that's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, keep going, and you have a beautiful day.